Yo, 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 what's up, players? It's your boy Tuan here. The NBA Finals have finally arrived, and man, how great were game one and two. Um, we saw Boston storm back against the Warriors um, in an epic fourth quarter there, led by Derek White, Al Horford. What a game by those two guys. And then game two, um, we saw Golden State really show off their championship pedigree uh, and the team that we've seen in the past. So, you know, on this pod, Nav and I just really take a look at, you know, how everything unraveled, the key players, the key matchups, um, the coaching decisions and everything kind of in between. So really hope you guys enjoy this one. Um, you know, stay tuned for, for future episodes as we, you know, kind of dissect everything that's going on in the final. So hope you guys enjoy. Thank you guys for listening and peace. Welcome back to the ATL Podcast. We're on episode number 54. And with the NBA Finals under underway and two really exciting games under our belts, we're here to break down and analyze really what happened and what transpired so far. So, of course, Nav, what's going on, baby? How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, these two games, these two days between games... It's really killing me, man. I'm really enjoying watching these these playoff games. Last podcast, we were talking about just sort of how dull the entire playoffs have been, like very little, you know, um, clutch games, close games. And here we are, Golden State versus Boston. It's been nothing but entertaining. Regardless of the score of game two, it was still pretty fucking fun to watch. So um, I'm just glad that we're finally getting that exciting basketball that we've been that we've been hoping for. How are you? Yeah, man, everything's good. Everything's good. Really just watching ball, playing ball. Um, yeah, you know, just ball, ball is really life right now. And you were saying before we started recording the podcast that you've been uh, you've been going to some of the Drew League games because that started up. Yeah, so Adidas has taken over the the sponsorship for the Drew League from Nike. So we're we're sponsoring the Drew League. Uh, we're sponsoring the Rocker League. Um, and we're sponsoring the um, Atlanta Entertainment Basketball League. So those three, those three big ones that that were that we're doing. So um, yeah, I went out. This was the first weekend where they they had games. So it was like the start of the season for them. I think it's like a eight week season for for all these teams. And yeah, really a lot of good competitive um, games. With you know, obviously you're gonna see. Some former D1 guys, some guys that are still playing in Europe, and some NBA guys like we saw um, Montrezl Harrell have a pretty pretty sick game. Um, I'm not sure if you're like familiar with what's his name, um, Frank Frank Nitty. He's like a kind of a balls life uh, character, and then we saw the Hezzy God, another like balls life guy, and then we saw uh, Lee Angelo. He was playing. Um, in one of the games that we that we left to watch the finals, but he was he was warming up and uh, Lavar was there. Um, I don't think Mello was there, but I saw I saw the 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 mom and then I saw um, what's his name Lonzo. So the the entire family is there. So I think they're they're probably gonna be there to support uh, Leangelo or Jello as as some people call him. But um, yeah, it was fun, man. It was cool to just be out there and kind of um, experience the 
the atmosphere there and kind of what Julie's all about. We always kind of seen it on YouTube and all the social media stuff, but it was cool to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to have that in your backyard. I wonder what the crowds are going to be like when guys like James Harden and DeMar DeRozan are there. And I wonder, you know, do you know in advance? Uh, I, I might be able to find out, uh, but I, they, there's no like rosters that are posted anywhere. I just kind of went blind. I didn't know who was going to play. So um, I'm sure I can find out, or I'm sure if I see something online where DeMar is back home in California, you know, he's probably going to hit it up because it's right down the street from, from Compton. So I think it's in Compton. I don't, like I'm not, I'm not like so familiar with like the area, but I'm pretty sure it's Compton. It was a nice area though. Um, do you have to pay for the tickets? No, it's free, free admission for everyone. It's, Interesting. It's like a very community-based um, event, tournament, whatever you want to call it, but, or summer league. Um, so yeah, very cool to just, you can just walk in, no, no payments or nothing. Very cool. Hey, quick, before we, before we get into this real quick, uh, I'm just curious because I just read something about like the, is it called lit, like live golf? That's just like something that just- Yeah, L-I-V. Yeah, like L-I-V, the just called tournament. L-I-V? Yep. Okay, so can you, can you tell me what's going on with that? Because I saw like Dustin Johnson basically like left the tour and now he's playing in this more like lucrative league. Like what's, what's this all about? I just recently saw it this morning. I kind of heard about it the other day, but didn't really know what it was. But I'm sure you have a little more details on that. Like, what what is that, and why why is that a thing? Uh, well, basically, like other sports, uh, the Saudis are trying to get involved in you know sports like Formula One and golf. And basically, the way that they're attracting major talent is by providing like massive purses. So there's the PGA, and then there's this Saudi Golf Association. I don't know exactly what the what the league is called, but it's backed by uh, a lot of Middle Eastern uh, interests. And basically the way that they're attracting some of the top talent in the PGA is by just providing like ridiculous uh, payouts. So for example, I don't know exactly the numbers, but it's something like Dustin Johnson is being offered $120 million to play in this tournament, this LIV live tournament. And $120 million is actually more than Tiger Woods has amassed in his PGA career p- playing golf. Really? So a lot of these, like uh, Tiger Woods probably makes three quarters of his money in endorsements. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so a guy like Dustin Johnson, who quite frankly um, is probably outside of his prime, still a fantastic golfer, but probably outside of his prime when you think of um, you know the career arc of a golfer. And he's getting offered $120 million to play in this tournament. So the PGA has already, you know, for the last couple of years, sort of um, sanctioned this, uh, or not sanctioned, but sort of boycotted this other league and have, you know, basically said that if if PGA players play in the Saudi League, there will be repercussions. Um, it's still undetermined what the repercussions for Dustin Johnson are going to be, but like the PGA is going to have to set a precedent with this. And because basically he's dropping out of a PGA sanctioned tournament to play in this tournament and the tournament yeah. that he's backing out of, he's actually a sponsor of RBC. So RBC actually dropped that sponsorship, gotcha. but to be honest, like I can't see that sponsorship being nearly as lucrative, lucrative as $120 million. Like that's generational wealth. 
Yeah, um, that's wild. And yeah, you know, it, it it is what it is. You can't, to be honest, you can't blame Dustin Johnson for um, taking that payout because that's probably a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like I said, he's going to have some really good golf left in his career and he's going to probably win a couple more tournaments, but he's not, you know, stringing together win after win after win like you're supposed to when you're sort of, you know, getting that kind of money. Well, cool. so are you, are you a fan of the idea? Like I'm not, a, I'm more of a PGA like purist, to be yeah. honest. I kind of like the tradition behind the PGA and I don't really like how they're trying to disrupt what the PGA has going just by money. You know what I mean? Like, to be honest, um, not for me, but you know, I'm not the one being offered 120. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I feel you. I feel you. That. But you know, this is sort of what's happening with Phil Mickelson, you know, over the last six months, he's gotten a ton of backlash because basically he got caught off the record saying or acknowledging sort of some of the inhumane behavior that has allegedly happened, like on that side of the world, um, very well, like, being cognizant of it, but then saying, Hey, if they're going to pay me, then I'll put that all on the back burner. And he got caught saying that. So there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of drama behind that, behind the Saudi league and the, in the PGA right now. And it's going to be interesting how it all unfolds because if more if more players start saying yes to these payouts and these offers, I mean, the PGA can't just, you know, ban all the good players from playing in their tournaments, you know, they might have their hand might get forced at some point. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep asking you how that, how that goes. Cause yeah, I just, I saw that news. I'm like, yo, that's kind of crazy news. And I, and I know just Johnson isn't again, like he's a bit past his prime, but I thought that was like a big, big news for a guy that's, you know, such a, such a big player in that, in that, in the sport there. So it's crazy. Cause he is, he is still like a major ticket. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wonder what they would have offered a guy like Bryson DeChambeau or, or, a, or a guy like, you know, Brooks Kepka. they're kind of all in the same playing field. Um, you know, what would, what would they have offered Justin Thomas? Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know, these offers are going to come their way at some point and it's going to be interesting to see who, uh, who accepts, who rejects. Well, well, I appreciate the breakdown. Yeah. I, I, I just, I had no idea and uh, I didn't want to really have to go down that rabbit hole. So I mean, that's th the gist. Of, I think that's the gist of it. I could be wrong in some areas, but. Cool. All right. All right. Here, let's, uh, let's, let's get to the reason why, why we're on this right now. So man, the finals two games in so far, um, super entertaining games. Um, a lot of runs, a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, I, I feel like game one and two, we're somewhat similar, but also very different, um, if that makes any sense. But, you know, let, let's go down um, and just analyze what happened in game one. So, you know, really what in the, in the first half, Boston, I believe, led by two. Um, the Golden State Warriors stormed back with a huge third quarter, 38-24. And then the Celtics somehow, some way, put it all together in the fourth, probably one of the best fourth quarters I've seen a single team play against a high level championship team like this like the Warriors the team that has that experience in the finals and we see you know some of the guys that again guys that are third fourth fifth option meeting some guys off the bench playing extremely well so what what was your biggest takeaway from game one how it all went down um you know what was 
what was the, you know, one or two main, main factors that you, that, that you thought really just changed the um, energy and just changed the, the whole outcome of the game? Yeah, I mean, I'd call game one the Al Horkford game, arguably the best playoff game all year, arguably one of the best playoff games that I've ever seen, um, just because of the amount of swings. Tatum didn't play very well, but Jalen Brown was absolutely possessed in that fourth quarter. Um, he was actually pretty unconscious in the third and fourth quarter, but I think you really have to give it up for guys like Derek White and Al Horford who are unconscious from the three-point line. Um, Golden State just couldn't put a nail in the coffin. You know, they were up by double digits, I think four or five times throughout that game, and Boston kept coming back. They shot 51% from three. It, that's, I think that's a, like an NBA record. And it really doesn't make any sense because the guys that were hitting him aren't notoriously, you know, Duncan Robinson's or anything like that, who you could sort of expect that from. This was from Derek White. This is from Al Horford. Um, but yeah, you know, they, they just kept persevering and they were on fire. I think if you're a Boston fan, you know, you got to be absolutely ecstatic about stealing a game in golden state where you trailed by double digits going into the fourth but if you're a golden state fan i think you can sort of convince yourself that that shooting performance won't happen again right um for for on the golden state side i have to say that i think that you got to chalk this one up to steve kerr as much as i love steve kerr he did three questionable things that i think he must, he must be losing sleep over. Um, he just had a terrible job reading the room, which he usually has a really good job. He's usually really good at reading the room and reading the barometer, but Curry went into like generational talent mode in the first quarter. He hit six threes. He was dancing. He was shimmying. The arena was on fire and Kerr, and Kerr sat him for 20 minutes. And I know that they were up by double digits and Curry could use the rest, but this is the finals. And I feel like you got to throw the kitchen sink at a team, especially when Curry, it was as hot as he was. Um, number two, Otto Porter Jr. He was on fire and I think he was on pace for having like a career night. And then Kerr shifted towards a Draymond Green, Andre Godala lineup, which really lacked in shooting. Otto Porter was on fire. Um, so they kind of went flat there. And I think he just kind of put Draymond Green and Iggy in for too long and they kind of lost that rhythm that they had. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Let's, let's start with kind of the Celtics perspective there. Um, again, this was, it was the Al Horford game, but it was also the Derek, the Derek White game. And honestly, the, that was probably the best game I've seen either of those guys play again. Um, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't watched, I still watch enough Boston games. I probably watch more Boston games than I do other other teams. So I, I have a good feel for the team. I've watched them play for the last, I would say, three, four years, um, you know, quite a bit there. So seeing Al Horvath play that way and then Derek White, who's kind of struggled quite a bit uh, in, in the first few rounds of the playoffs. And I know he uh, played a little better against the Heat in the last two games, but really, really surprising to see how well he's been just shooting the three ball. And Horford, um, Smart, and Derek White combined for 15 of 23 from, the three, from, 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 from beyond the arc. So 
that that was definitely the the the, the swing that you know brought Boston back from I think it was like 14 down and then they eventually won by 12 um just within that you know fourth quarter so Tatum didn't have a you know great game and I know people are saying you know he he even though he didn't shoot well three for 17 he still passed the ball but honestly that's that's a bad look for him like you're a guy that's supposed to be there I know he's still a really young player and he's had these games um throughout the playoffs where he, he shot you know extremely poorly and um, just having 12 points in 42 minutes um, in a game that you really want to be able to win. And again, I know that they won and these the, the other guys really stepped up, but having Jason Tatum not be able to produce there was a bit concerning. Obviously, I, I know what happened in game two, but it was a bit concerning there. And I really like what I saw from Jalen Brown. Again, he, he played really well in the stretch. He's been super impressive in the fourth. A guy that, you know, came into the league out of Cal and um, the number one thing about him was like, he can't, he doesn't have a perimeter shot. He's super athletic, super intelligent, um, a guy that can get to the the basket at, at will and, you know, usually get to the free throw line. But um, the way that he's been able to shoot the ball, uh, especially from beyond the arc is super impressive. And I think that's just the, the maturity and just the growth of being able to be a playoff contender for so long that, you know, he's been put in this, this position just having Tatum beside him that I think that's huge for him. So Boston, again, they shot the ball extremely well from the three, especially those three guys. Um, and that's definitely what led them to, to, to having that victory again. Also, they, they just passed the ball very well in the perimeter. I know there's a lot of times where I'm like, man, that's a wide open shot for Pritchard or that's a wide open shot for Horford. Like you don't expect Horford to score 26, but you're still expecting to, sh you know, shoot really well from the three because he's been doing that all uh, playoff long. <clears throat> so, you know, props up to those guys, uh, from the Warriors perspective, like you mentioned, Curry had a huge first quarter. Well, he, he had, he had a bit, well, he was like 18 or 19 points in the first, right? And then he it was 18 he in the first. Yeah. 18 in the first. So I, I know he played the entire first, so I get why they sat him a little bit in the, in the second quarter there, but I think you kind of have to play, play off that somehow or just let him keep playing and just see where it goes. But I know they sat him at the beginning of the second, and that's kind of where they lost a bit of that momentum. Um, and it was surprising to me that we saw Iguodala in there. Uh, to be honest, I know he made uh, three out of the four shots that he took, but I, I guess they they just weren't um, re reliant on or just very confident in playing another rookies or playing well, Bielitsa so many, so many minutes out there? I think with Curry, I think what happens with Curry too is he he likes to coach off formula. He's very Spursian in that regard where, you know, he sits guys routinely at a certain point in the game. He plays certain guys routinely at certain points in the game. And I think that's what we saw with Iguodala where it was just more of, you know, he had been injured for so long. He was a future, he was a previous finals MVP. He's such a big part of that core and I think that Kerr just, he sometimes faults on loyalty, um, where I think in this particular matchup against Boston, and you saw it in game two, which we'll talk to is, talk about is he has to continue to improvise. And I don't want to jump ahead, but you saw in game two that he threw out guys for longer minutes, guys like Peyton, guys like Bielitsa. Um, he threw a lot more unconventional matchups at Boston rather than playing you know, that 
2018, 2019 core. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, we saw, yeah, we let, let's, okay. Well, is there anything else in terms of the, the first game there that you saw that was, um, that you noticed that, you know, that, that you weren't expecting or anything that kind of caught your eye there outside of, you know, Clay didn't play so well. Um, and, and again, I know he didn't have a great, um, second game either. No one really, you know, outside of Wiggins who didn't shoot the three points so well, he still, you know, got to the rim was able to, you know, be able to score 20 points here. But outside of him, no one else really did much from, from a box score perspective. Um, was there anything else that you noticed in the, the first game that, um, that you wanted to bring up here? Not really. At the end of the day, I think it was all Boston. I think that, uh, I think the coaching staff of Golden State kind of muted Curry, which is just, it's crazy to think about. But, you know, I think that could have been a, that could have been a 60 piece. You know, that could have been a historic performance because sometimes you just got to let him go and I know that you know rest is essential but he was just in a different mode he was he was he was all he was dancing in the first quarter (laughs) yeah no he honestly game one also game two uh, he, he he I think he may have had a obviously not as hot of a start but he had so many unbelievable shots in game two so let's let's transition there uh, so Golden State um, are up to at half. They're, they're playing a decent decent game. Boston starts out really hot. Jalen Brown, I think, scored 12 of his 17 points within like the first like four or five minutes there. And then he definitely cooled off. Um, he ended up shooting five for 17 from the field, surprisingly. I think he missed a bunch of his shots afterwards after that hot start. Uh, but we saw Jason Tatum... Uh, have a bounce back game. He missed a lot of mid range shots that um, that could have added, you know, made this game a little more interesting. But I think from a Boston side of things, they they did not get any help from any of their any of the guys that came up big in the in the game one. So if you're looking here, Smart had two points, Horford had two points, um, White had twelve. So in total, they. You know, they, they dropped from whatever, probably 50 plus points down to 16 from from those three guys, which, again, hurts them a lot. And if you're not getting production from Grant Williams, um, it's a totally different game. So they kept it close in, in the first half there. But um, as Golden State has done in the past and what they've done in game one and game two is that they were able to make adjustments and they were able to kind of get their shot going and they were able to get their offense flowing properly. And, you know, that's a huge, um, really just contribution from Curry. I think a lot of that was, I know we were chatting and having that like back and forth group text, but just so hard to defend that pick and roll uh, from Curry. And yeah, I I know it's easier said than done, but Boston did a really good, like a poor job a flashing or showing up on that high screen and uh, Curry, even though it was contested, th- that's like his shot. So he was able to get and make a lot of those tough contested shots. And that, you know, opened the floodgates for the Warriors to um, have a 35 to 14 run in that third quarter. So um, it was a close game up to half. And then just really that third quarter was kind of the, the entire game there. But, you know, from, from your perspective, what, what changes did Kerr make um, 
from game one to game two that you saw that had a positive impact on, on the outcome of this game? And kind of what did uh, Adoka do, you know, well or, or didn't do well that kind of um, changed a bit of the, the, the outcome of this game as well? Well, this series is perplexing, like very, very perplexing if you start to really dissect things because we said this last podcast, no, neither of these teams, Matt, like neither of these teams saw each other at any point during the road to the finals. You know, so this is uncharted territory for both teams. And like I said, in game one, if you're a Golden State fan, you're saying, well, you know, Boston's not going to shoot that much anymore or shoot that well anymore. Well, if you're a Boston fan after game two, you're saying, we're not going to miss, you know, tw- I think it was like 25 to 30 uh points attempts in the paint like they missed every bunny around the hoop and so it wasn't really like the box score is kind of misleading because you're looking at the box score and you're seeing guys uh you know not not scoring a lot but if you were watching the game like they were actually getting great looks around the paint they just couldn't make anything so if you're a Boston fan like that's a pretty good takeaway in itself um in terms of in terms of adjustments I thought Kerr he put Gary Payton Jr. on the floor and he was such a spark plug for that team. The crowd really fed off him. He hit that baseline three. The crowd erupted because they, had, they hadn't seen him since the elbow injury against Memphis. So that was huge. Um, there was also great production by Jordan Poole, but I kind of find it funny because it always happens when they're up by so much. So he hits that. They're already up by like 15. He hits that half court shot. The, the tongue's out. Everything's, you know, everything's going their way. Um but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's hard to say with regards to the pick and roll. I think my biggest concern is that Boston's intentionally not coming high on it because if you double, then that opens the floodgates for that classic Golden State Warriors type of basketball. And I think right now, so many people are focused on Clay Thompson and how he's not playing very well, but he's really not playing very well because they're not double teaming Curry. So he's not getting a lot of open looks. Everything that he's taking is very, very contested. So I think Boston is probably going to switch to a double in game three. That's probably my my bet is that they're going to start uh, blitzing a little bit. Not the whole game, but they'll definitely experiment with blitzing every now and then. Um, so you should see things open up for other players on Golden State. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what, what, they, uh, what they scheme up for that because... If if they do double um, double hard or show hard on that um, on that screen, that's gonna be just a you know a pass to Draymond and it's it's four on three and that's that's their bread and butter that that's always right. been their bread and butter because uh, Draymond's such a good facilitator. Again, he's he's not a great shooter. Obviously, he's not gonna pick and pop, but he's gonna just get into kind of the free throw line um, free throw line area and then just make a pass to Clay to Wiggins, to whoever is open, or just make that assist, that hockey assist um, that will eventually lead to that open shot. So I guess it's pick your poison with this team, especially with Curry being so hot. Uh, you you much you might rather have a guy like Thompson or Wiggins or Bielitsa or Porter beating you rather than Curry having one of those games where he's just making every difficult shot uh, from different angles. So um, I also want to quickly bring up the fact that Draymond, even though his, you know, stat line was whatever, nine, five, and seven, he had the ultimate Draymond game, just being able to be that instigator, 
be that aggressor on not only the the offensive end, I would say, because even though he didn't, sh- you know, he was two or three, still got points, but he was just facilitating, getting seven assists, but also being on that defensive end where he's, you know, falling over um, Jalen Brown. He's, you know, he almost got that second tech. He's really just, you know, walking on that line there, which again, we've seen this happen before in, in the, in the finals in 2016, where if he doesn't, if he doesn't get kicked out of that game, Golden State Warriors are a totally different team and they win, you know, their, their second championship back then. So um, he, he's, he's playing, you know, he's playing with fire right now, but it worked out for them because it, I felt like, you know, after that, um, after that Jalen Brown incident, I think that just Boston wasn't able to get a flow with their offense. They weren't able to, you know, hit the shots that they needed to get close to this game. I know at one point it was like a 14 point lead for Golden State. And then uh, the Celtics made, I think they went like an eight or run. So it got down to six. And I think the pivotal point in this game was when right after that, you know, Golden State, you know, you kind of felt it coming again. You know, we this is deja vu from game one. And um, I believe it was like Otto Porter. He was in the, the left corner. He made a huge, huge shot to to get that lead back up to nine. And then I don't think they really looked back after that. Um, but that was a big, big shot by Otto Porter. And he's played really well. I know he that's the only one shot that he made um, in that game. But he, he again, like in game one, he was four or five from three there too. So, um, you know, just having that additional kind of vet who plays defense, who's kind of more of a three, four, so he, he can give you some length um, on, on defense as well. But just being able to shoot that, you know, that three point is huge for this team. It opens up more space for these guys. Um, and like you said, Jordan Poole, um, he struggled mightily in game one, but was able to get his, you know, get going, even though you, you want to call it garbage time. I don't really think it was garbage time. They, it was still a close game. He hit one, three, it was like the two for one. So it was like the last minute of the, of the third, he hit that one, three with like 30 something seconds left. Golden State turns it over. And then he hits that, you know, kind of miraculous, half court heave. So, and I think that took it up to like 20 plus points. So I think that was kind of the game. And then 10 minutes into the fourth or 10 minutes in the fourth, uh, Adoka just took out the, the rest of the guys. So kind of uh, threw the white flag there, but um, overall Golden State had a great game. Everyone, you know, contributed that in, in that sense. Uh, the big question mark for them is, you know, can Clay kind of get it going again? I know he's, He's always been this type of player where he might have a horrific game and then just go off with 30, 40 points um, in another. So it'll be interesting to see. I think Clay, if, if Clay is able to get back into that um, rhythm that he got when he was playing against the Mavs, I think Golden State's going to be really tough to beat. I don't think Curry's going to slow down any anytime soon. And I think, you know, you're seeing Looney, I think you're seeing Wiggins kind of get a little more comfortable over there. And then I was surprised to see like Bielitsa play um, really well too. You know, he, he played, um, what did he play? Like 10 minutes or so, but he's still like defensively, he was, he was fine. He, be, he made a few layups that, that he had to, and uh, he, he was able to uh, rebound the ball decently well. So um, yeah, I think just having pain out there, guarding, guarding anyone, he guarded anyone. Same with uh, Green. Um, Draymond just being able to be that pass. And I think, I think I saw a lot of Draymond on Jalen Brown, which is probably the right play for them, especially since Brown is more like the slasher. He's not going to be so dependent on his shot. 
And, you know, there, there was a lot of contested shots that um, Draymond was able to, um, to fight for. So, um, yeah, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, you know, game three tomorrow? Um, what, what are you looking to, to see out there? What adjustments do you, do you, do you think Adoka or Kerr will, will, uh, will explore here just to make sure that, you know, um, Boston, you know, first game at home uh, in the finals. And I think if they don't win this one, it's gonna be tough, tough for them to um, kind of get that momentum they need. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts for, for game three and what, what do you expect to see here? I mean, if, if I'm Boston, I don't think I'm particularly playing that bad. You know, last game, speaking of Bielitsa, he had four layups in a row in the second quarter, and then Poole went off, and then they went on that massive run in the third. So what really separated the game for Boston was the third quarter. I think they got scored 35 to 14 in the third. Um, so there's ball game right there. And like I said, they missed a ton of field goals around the paint. Like if you look at the stat, I think they, I think they missed 25 to 30 point, point attempts in the paint. So if you're Boston, I don't know if you really did anything wrong per se. I would say turnovers, if anything, might have costed them, you know, a, a lot of baskets. But, you know, I think you still got to continue to play with the same intensity. They're not playing bad, particularly. I think the biggest question they're going to have to decide is what to do on that pick and roll and you know I I'm pretty bullish on Boston for game three because you know if they keep just doing what they're doing plugging away you know they're a very tough team to beat I think Golden State has a lot of to figure out because you know a lot of their success is going to be contingent on Clay Thompson and you know Steve Kerr is going to have to decide how much can we really play him if he's not going to be producing? Because they have alternative lineups. But, you know, Clay's such a staple for them, and he does so much on the court like Curry does in terms of, you know, keeping defenders at bay and keeping defenders honest. But, you know, I think game three is going to come down to Wiggins more than it's going to come down to Clay because Wiggins had a fantastic game too in terms of being aggressive. He just wasn't making his layups. He kept getting his own rebound and putting it back in. So. You know, I think they're going to need to rely more on a guy like Poole and Wiggins than they are Clay Thompson because, you know, to be honest, they're making life really hard for Clay. And if they're not going to be double teaming that pick and roll, Clay's just going to have contested looks. Yeah, I know he Clay Clay was he he was definitely forcing it a, a bit even at the end there. I know he's trying to get his rhythm back, um, but no way in hell is Clay going to be sitting, um, just like you said, just for just just to be a presence out there. Like there's no way that teams can, you know, help off of him. So it's gonna just even being a decoy of some sort, like even though he, if he's gonna shoot again, four for 19, which I doubt he will, or one for me from the three, um, I think he's still like a positive player on the floor, regardless of what he does on the shooting side of things. Because again, he still defends, he still kind of does a, all the small things that you want from him. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards Boston too for game three just because I've seen Grant Williams play really well at home. Um, I, I think Grant Williams guys, is trash, man. They're not even playing him. I know he, he, he's, he's been trash these last two games, but I just mean like what I saw in, in the Milwaukee game in game seven, when he had that huge, huge game against the Bucks, and just the, you know, the splits from home and away is huge for him. So I think the younger guys, I think Robert Williams, if he does play, I think even with Pritchard and Derek White, 
if they if they're playing at home and they get the momentum and they can make one or two threes uh, to start the game, that's going to be a huge boost for them. For sure. But, but see, that's where I think that's where Gary Payton comes into play because they didn't have him game one. No. Um, you throw that wrinkle, Draymond and Gary, Gary Payton on the floor at the same time. You know, it's going to be hard for them to play a guy like Grant Williams. And really, they've muted that alley-oop game that Boston has with Robert Williams. Yeah, Robert Williams isn't 100%, though. Um, I'm sure you were watching just – he wasn't right – well, he he got hurt by Smart on that one play where, like, his – like, buckled his knee, and he already has that knee injury. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's just – yeah, man, I just um, – yeah, let's, let's just see what happens game three. I know we got – a minute left on this pot, so let's quickly wrap it up. Um, yeah, your predictions. You got Celtics tomorrow? Yeah, I got the Celtics tomorrow. You know, I, we should probably extend this pot maybe five more minutes because I don't think we spent enough time talking about Draymond Green and the impact that he had in game two. And Boston's going to have a really tough decision in game three because Jeff Van Gundy said something really smart. You know, if he's going to bark, they should address it and try to get a double tech. Because, you know, if he keeps playing that way, there's going to be an ejection game. Hey, maybe, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. But, yeah, no, I, I, I think I'm pretty, uh, pretty confident that Boston's going to take game three in the garden. All right, maybe we wrap it up. Yeah, sure. It's recording. Okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, Nav, just give me your predictions again. Yeah, so I think I think Boston in three. You know, I can see it being another split, uh, but I just think that they're gonna be pretty pissed off. You know, they got thrown through the ringer at Chase Center in Game Two. There was a lot of Draymond Green. There was a lot of complaining to the refs. There was a lot of missed baskets around the hoop, missed shots around the hoop. Um, I think they're gonna be firing at all cylinders. All right, so I. I know I was leaning towards Celtics, but just knowing that if Robert Williams doesn't play in game three, and I, I trust Clay is going to have a pretty big game in game game three as well. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think Draymond's continue to be kind of that, that I don't know, what, what do you want to call it? Whatever adjective you want to use, but uh, just that, you know, that bully, that that aggressor, that just the, the agitator on, on the floor, I think he's going to make a huge impact on the game. So I'll, I'll go the opposite way. I'll say Warriors steal one in Game Three, and then I'll I'll reevaluate and see how 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 that game goes, and then uh, we'll, we'll predict Game Four afterwards. But um, well, yeah, one one thing I want to say, and this is the one thing I hate about refing that's going to be inevitable, is you know Zach Zarba had that opportunity to call a second technical foul on Draymond Green, and then on national TV they bring in Steve Jabby, and he's talking about how. You know, there's a there's an art to the science of refing where, you know, you see a guy like Draymond Green and, you know, this was obviously in technical foul territory. But, you know, you have to understand that he has um, one technical foul already. And that threw a lot of people, you know, that pissed a lot of people off because you're like, hey, like and then at times you're like, well, you have to ref according to the book. So. There can't be any variability in refing. It's the most objective component of basketball. So I feel like because of those comments and because of Draymond Green's actions in game two, I think there's going to be a lot of hypersensitivity um, 
around the refereeing of Draymond Green. Yeah, for sure. I, I could I could see that. Again, we we the 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 refing has always been so spotty, you know, in regular season, the playoffs, in the first 47 minutes versus the last minute of the game. So it, it is circumstantial, I would say. Um, and then refs know that. Refs know the players, ref know they know the game, they know like the 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 impact that they make if they were to eject someone like Draymond Green from the game and just the the the, the outcome that could that could be from that. So um, yeah, I, I, I was I was shocked to even hear them say that, um, but you know they they did, and I think it's just it's really the truth. I think um, they they kind of understand you know the the different situation. So you know again I I, I don't think it changed the game drastically, but you know obviously that would have changed a bit of the series. But yeah, Draymond got away with got away with one, so I'm sure the Warriors and he'll take it. Well, we'll see. I'm so pumped for the game. Yeah, man, I'm excited. I'm excited, man. These, yeah, like you said, the two two day breaks are long. But I think they play again Friday, so we'll be right back at it. Is it Friday? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's Wednesday and Friday. Yeah, June eighth and tenth. You're right. Yeah. Perfect. All right, man. Cool. Thanks for thanks for staying up late and uh, doing this pod. Let's let's try to jump on one, um, maybe after game three. If not, we'll just do a recap of the the Boston home seat or Boston uh, home set there and then we'll figure it out from there well we got we got time right so we'll have Saturday Sunday and Monday to plan for that Monday night game yeah yeah exactly so yeah we'll figure something out in between those days all right man it was good chat with you yeah for sure all right we'll be in touch all right peace brother okay take care